Please open your Bible to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Now recently, as a family, we've uh, watched some episodes of the show Shark Tank. And if you're not familiar with the show, an entrepreneur goes before a panel of investors known as sharks, and they make a business presentation. They say, this is the business I own, and they make a request to the sharks, and they'll say something like, I'm seeking $200,000 for 20% of my company. And so you'll see the sharks writing down notes, figuring out what, how, much this company is actually, how much this person thinks this company is worth. So $200,000, 20%, they think it's worth a million dollars. Then they'll start asking questions. So tell us more about your company, tell us about your story, why are you doing this? They'll ask things like, uh, so how much have you sold? And the person responds, $25,000. And then they'll, they'll start laughing or they'll just shake their heads. And So you think your company is worth a million dollars and you sold $25,000? Was that like last week you sold $25,000? No, that's the life of our company. That's over the last four years. They're like, and your company's worth a million dollars? And so they, they in, in that case, they're sharks and they uh, poke holes and ridicule this person's presentation. And what you see oftentimes is that the entrepreneurs have a much uh, exaggerated understanding of what their company is actually worth. They have no idea how to accurately and clearly present their company's value. And if they get things wrong here, they come on the show and they have no shot of coming away with any kind of deal. They're doomed to fail on the show. Now, while this is true on Shark Tank, it's also true for us as Christians. But of critical importance is not the value of a company, but the value of Jesus Christ to us. Do we have a right understanding of the worth of Jesus? Whether we do or not will determine the trajectory of our lives. We're just singing, riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou my inheritance now and always, thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Now last week we considered the whole of Matthew's gospel to better understand how Matthew tells the story of Jesus through the lens of Israel's history. He does this to show how Jesus is the the new and better Joseph. He is the new and better Moses, the new and better David, the new and better Elisha, the new and better Solomon, the new and better Israel. Where every one of these fall short, Jesus never fails. He's the perfect Savior who has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then we look together at the first five verses of chapter 26, the very beginning of the passion narrative in Matthew's gospel. And here we begin a journey that will take us to the foot of the cross. And I mentioned last week how beginning in this chapter, Jesus, rather than being the main actor and speaker of the story, while remaining the focus of the narrative, he he seems to become almost passive. And so he's delivered up. He's handed over. He's passed from one group to another. You see, since early in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been the one speaking and acting and working. And now Matthew is going to highlight various responses to Jesus. And as we looked at last week, Jesus is in control of all of this. He's not some passive participant. He is the one controlling everything that goes on. But this morning we're going to look at the response of two individuals to Jesus over these two separate scenes. And we're going to be asking, how do they view Jesus? And the more important question for us, how do we view Jesus? So we're going to look at two characters, two scenes, two valuations of Jesus Christ. Scene one, the woman. 
Read with, me, read with me, beginning in Matthew 26, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of God. Now, after the scene in the palace of the high priest, so these powerful men in a powerful place, with men scheming and plotting, and how are they going to take down Jesus? Matthew transitions us to a small town just outside of Jerusalem called Bethany, and to this house of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, Simon was a very common name at the time, so we don't know exactly who he was, The only thing we know about him was that he was at one time a leper. He wouldn't have been a leper as they were at his house. It's possible that he was someone that Jesus had healed of leprosy. In the Gospel of John, we also read of this same event. And there, John tells us that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were also there. It's possible that Simon, the leper, was their father. Quite possible. But we don't really know. What we do know is that Jesus was there at this home of Simon the leper for a meal. His disciples are there, and Lazarus is there. Martha is also there, serving at the meal. And then in verse 7, Matthew records for us that a woman came in. Now John tells us the name of this woman. It was Mary, Lazarus' sister. And her action seems very unusual to us, but it was this way of showing honor to a distinguished guest. While her action is not unprecedented, it certainly goes well beyond what would have been ordinary at that time. She comes up to Jesus and has a a little bottle of perfume with a long neck, an expensive bottle with expensive perfume inside. It's probably likely this perfume came from India. And she breaks the bottle and pours it on the head of Jesus. John tells us she also pours it on his feet as he reclined at the table. John tells us this ointment was worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's, uh, a year's salary for a working man. So whatever that is to you, just have that number in mind. A year's salary for a working man. Thousands of dollars. And here, we get right to the point. To Mary, Jesus was not just some ordinary dinner guest or some prestigious dinner guest worthy of some honor. To Mary, Jesus was worth the most costly offering she could give. Certainly there were other ways that Mary could have shown honor to Jesus in this moment. But here in this moment, the thing that seemed most appropriate to her, most right and good, was to come to him and to give to him the most expensive thing that she had access to. Mary valued Jesus above all else. But when the disciples saw this, 
When they saw this extravagant act of honor, this lavish display of love, Matthew writes that they were indignant. That's not a word we throw around a lot. Sometimes we might hear it. Indignant means angry and annoyed that something is not as it should be. They saw this act as not right at all. Now these are men who have given up everything to follow Jesus. They've left their nets. They've left their livelihood. They've left their homes all to follow Jesus. But here they see Mary breaking this alabaster flask and pouring this ointment on his head, and they are indignant. And look at what they ask at the end of verse 8. Why this waste? The disciples, they, they did their valuation. They just did it on the wrong thing. They looked at this gift, and this gift is worth so much more than this act. Think about all that could be done with this very expensive ointment. This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. This would have been such a better use of this bottle of perfume. Think of all the people that could have been helped. All the people over a long period of time. This could help people for months and months. And here, it's broken and poured out in a matter of moments. What a waste. It's helping no one. But Jesus, Matthew says, aware of what they were thinking, what they were saying, Jesus, knowing their response, aware of their indignation, he steps in and corrects his disciples. He defends the woman. What the disciples call a waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. Mary has recognized that Jesus is worth all that she is and all that she has. And so she expresses that as she anoints his head with this ointment. Jesus does nothing to discount giving to the poor, but he's saying that the opportunity to honor and give to him is far more important than all else. And if we consider what Jesus is really saying here, it's astounding. This Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart, is acknowledging that he deserves this act. He, it's right and good and beautiful for her to pour this ointment on his head. He is great and greatly to be praised. He is worthy of all blessing, of all expense, of all love. And more than that, Jesus, once again, he tells the disciples about where he is headed, about what is to come. Look at 12, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus knows that in just a few days, as he said, that he will be hanging upon a cross. He has come to Jerusalem to die, that life would soon leave his body. And Mary's costly act of love not only shows how she values Jesus, but it prepares him for what is to come. It prepares his body for burial. And it appears that Mary is the only one who gets this. Jesus has said again and again that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to be delivered up and crucified. He's, he's told his disciples this. And in this anointing, Mary acknowledges that, that she believes this. But Jesus knows that this death is not the end of what he has come to do. It's not the termination of his mission. And this is why, really, the disciples rejected this idea that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to die. Because if he dies, that's, that's the end. That's the end of his mission, of this coming kingdom of God. It's the end. He can't die. But Jesus knew that this was only the beginning. 
And so in verse 13, Jesus makes this remarkable prophecy that points forward to how His mission it will continue. He says this, Truly I say to you, wherever this Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He tells the disciples that though they think this, that this ointment she's poured on His head has been a waste, that it's done for, that what could have been sold and given to help so many over a period of time is now gone, they have it so wrong. What Mary has done is a participation in what Jesus has come to do. He came to die. He came to be buried and to rise again that He might bring salvation to the world. And so what Mary has done will be told in memory of her. And right here, right now, in this room, today, January 29th, 2023, it's being fulfilled, this prophecy that Jesus made. J.C. Ryle wrote of this prophecy, the 19th century pastor, the deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are as completely forgotten as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded in 150 different languages. And now that's over 1,600 languages. And it's known all over the globe. The praise of man is but for a few days. The praise of Christ endures forever. The pathway to lasting honor is to honor Christ. What a beautiful picture of the surety of the Word of God and the surety that we have in following Him and honoring Him and obeying Him. Be encouraged and take heart. Don't grow weary of doing good. What we do for Christ is eternal. What we do for Christ is what lasts. It will not pass away. Listen to Ryle again. He says, Silver and gold she may have had none. Rank, power, and influence she may not have possessed. But if she loved Christ and confessed Christ and worked for Christ, her memorial shall be found on high. She shall be commended before assembled worlds. Do we know what it is to work for Christ? If we do, let us take courage and work on. What greater encouragement can we desire than we see here? We may be laughed at and ridiculed by the world. Our motives may be misunderstood. Our conduct may be misrepresented. Our sacrifices for Christ's sake may be called waste. Waste of time. Waste of money. Waste of strength. Let none of these things move us. The eye of Him who sat in Simon's house in Bethany is upon us. He notes all we do and is well pleased. So let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work because we know that our labor is not in vain. May we be found faithful, brothers and sisters, to love and honor and serve our Lord God and Savior, regardless of what those around us think. Because He is worthy. He is worth it. And just like Mary, let us value Him above all else. Matthew then turns to another scene, a contrasting scene. The second scene, scene two. Scene one was the, the a woman. Scene two is the disciple. And before I continue in Matthew 26 or 28, we're going to see women come up a few times. Women did not have a... a high standing in this culture whatsoever. And so it's remarkable that the, the person who gets it in this room at Simon's house in Bethany is a woman. And Jesus is highlighting that and defending her. We're going to see later as we go through Matthew 26, 27, 28, we're going to see other women testify to who Jesus is and what He has come to do. 
And what's unexpected is how those who should know better and who do have a higher standing in their culture, how they respond. And this is one example of that. This disciple. Read with me beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. These are some, some dark words in Scripture. As Judas followed Jesus, as he looked on all that Jesus was doing, as he heard what Jesus was saying, he was becoming more and more skeptical of him. He was not acting like a coming king, a conquering king who's come to defeat his enemies. He's acting weak and and defeated. He justifies Mary's act of waste as preparing him for burial. That doesn't sound like a leader you want to follow. And so Judas, he goes to the chief priests. And the chief priests, they don't come to him. He goes to them. So they're not out there. I mean, they were plotting and scheming in the palace. And they're not going out to the disciples now and trying to find kind of who's the weak link here. Who might we use to help us? No, Judas comes to them. He seeks them out and asks them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now this is not a small and insignificant sum. Judas didn't betray Jesus for a Big Mac. Uh, 30 pieces of silver was somewhere around three months of wages. So roughly 25% of the value of this ointment that Mary poured on the head of Jesus. But if you've been paying attention, you might guess that there's some kind of significance, biblical significance behind this amount, 30 pieces of silver. And if you guessed that, you would be right. We find that significance first in Exodus with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now all the law is, is given to God's people to speak to them in how to live as God's people. How do you live under God's rule? And a lot of times, maybe you're doing a Bible reading plan right now, and you're in, in Exodus, or you come to Leviticus, and you're kind of like, what is the point? And why, I don't really care about an ox goring somebody. Well, maybe you should, because in Exodus 21, there's this paragraph that deals with what to do when an ox gores a person to death. And if this happens, and the ox has never shown any habits of goring people, then only the ox must be killed. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore people in the past, if it's kind of a wild ox, and its owner is unable to keep it in and keep it under control, and it goes and kills a person, not only should the ox be killed, but the owner of that ox should be killed as well. Now, why such a harsh punishment? Well, it's because animals, they're supposed to submit to and be restrained by their owners. An animal that goes wild and kills will itself be killed. And if an owner is unable to restrain its own animal, then that owner should also be killed. But then in Exodus 21, verse 32, we read this. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So what the law says, if if it's a slave who dies, So not a man or woman, not a son or daughter, but a slave who dies. How much is their life worth? 
their life is worth 30 pieces of silver. This is the value of the slave. This is the value that Judas accepts as the worth of the life of Jesus. He put a money on that, I mean, put a, put a dollar figure on that valuation. 30 pieces of silver. And then Matthew records that from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And these are sobering words, but I want us to back up and consider for a moment just who Judas is. Like, we know the story. We know Judas is going to betray him. We know what's going to happen to Judas. But in knowing that, we can read this and just not really consider who Judas actually was. Matthew introduces this scene by highlighting who Judas was in verse 14. Look at that first, that first clause, that first phrase, then one of the twelve. Judas is one of the twelve. Mark and Luke, they record the same phrase about Judas. And, and I think all three of them record it because it heightens the evil of what Judas does. It's not a stranger who betrays Jesus. It's not one of the chief priests who betray Jesus. It's his friend. Judas had been called specifically by Jesus to follow him. But not only was he called by Jesus, Judas chose to follow him. He left behind his life as he knew it. He left behind his relationships, his livelihood, all in order to follow Jesus. And Judas had viewed all of that as worth it. Consider the privilege of the twelve, of Judas. He walked with Jesus. He saw his miracles firsthand. He heard his teaching. He shared meals with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He talked to Jesus. He labored alongside Peter and James and John and the other disciples. He gathered up all those leftovers after Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He was sent out with the disciples to perform miracles as Christ's representative. And think about all this. All that Judas did seemed sincere. Next week we're going to see how Jesus tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And we will see that none of the other disciples respond, is it Judas? None of them say that. They say, is it I? None of them are thinking, oh, it's definitely going to be Judas. I mean, I've always thought something fishy about him was going on. It's got to be him. No, none of them suspect Judas. Why did they not suspect Judas? Because all that he did seemed sincere. It seemed that he had given up all for the sake of Jesus, to follow Jesus. And all the disciples saw it. Yet for all of this, for all of the privileges that Judas had, for all that he gave up in following Jesus, his heart, the heart of Judas, was never changed. And he held on to, to really just one sin. What motivated Judas to betray Jesus? Why does he seek out the chief priests? Scripture only ever gives us one motive. It's the love of money. Consider where Matthew situates this little story. It's right after Mary has poured out this costly ointment on Jesus because she values him above all else. When John tells the same story, he points out that Judas was the, the treasurer of the disciples. He was the one who kept the money back. And it was Judas who asked, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
And John then adds this in John 12. He says, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John highlights that Judas wasn't so much concerned about the poor as he was concerned about more money for himself. And, and here at Simon the leper's house, Judas sees all this money going to waste. All this money that he could have helped himself to. So now he turns to the chief priests asking, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? This shows that, that sin was Judas's ruin. While he had given up so much to follow Jesus, he did not give up his love of money. The Bible speaks again and again of how dangerous and destructive and evil it is to love and live for money. It was love for money that led Samson to be betrayed to the Philistines. It was a love of money that led Gehazi, who we talked about last week, to lie to Elisha. It was a love of money that led Ananias and Sapphira to try to lie to Peter. It was a love of money that led Judas to betray the very Son of God. And, and Grace Church, here's the great danger for us. We live in a world, in a culture, in communities that are run by and consumed with this same love. So let us take heed lest we fall. Let us remember Judas and his love of money as a warning to us. Because we have this danger where we, we experience and know and, and see all of this good in God. And, and we've placed some value on that. If you didn't place any value on that, you wouldn't be here this morning. Yet if we hold on to this love of money, if we hold on to our desire to have more and more, to covet and to gain, then we may find that God was never our God. For no man can serve two masters. Let us remember the words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. through Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Judas, driven by his love of money, accepts 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, for the life of the Son of God. We should be sobered by this story, and we should reflect on our own lives and see where, where does this sin, the love of money, where is it getting a foothold in my heart? We're all susceptible to it. If any of us thinks we're not susceptible to it, take heed lest you fall. Because, I mean, think about the most unlikely people in the world to fall prey to this sin. And I think at the top of that list, one would want to put the 12 people that lived and worked and walked with and heard Jesus, the very Son of God, saw Him walk on water. May we take heed lest we fall. So here we are. 
We are at the beginning of this passion narrative. It's the, it's the climax of all of human history. And we have these two pictures, these two people, these two scenes, these two valuations of Jesus. In one scene, we have a woman, Mary, who pours out a year's worth of wages on the head of Jesus. In the other scene, we have a disciple, Judas, haggling with men over the worth of Jesus, settling for 30 pieces of silver. The woman understands that Jesus is worth more than all else. He's deserving of everything we have, of all that we can give. She knows that to follow him is to turn what we value on its head. Instead of living for what we see, we live for what we do not see. Instead of laying up treasures on earth, we lay up treasures in heaven. Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth all that we have. He is worth more than we can give. Because he is the one who gave up himself for us. He was murdered on the cross. He was buried. He was laid in the grave for us to pay for our sins. So let us trust in him. Let us follow him and let us honor him with all that we are. Would you pray with me? Father, may we truly know you for who you are, and who you have revealed yourself to be in your Son, Jesus Christ. May you be our vision. May you be the Lord of our hearts. May we see that all that we have and all that we need is in you. Would you shape our hearts, our affections, that we might want everything in you. And thank you that all that is good is found in you. You are the satisfier of souls. Lord, keep us on guard against the love of money. May we walk humbly before you, dependent upon you. All for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.